Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, episode 60. 60. It's great actually, the uh, listening seems to be going up. Well, it's not seems to be going up, it is going up month on month. So typically now, there's about nine and a half thousand downloads a month, which is flipping brilliant. And uh, I'm a bit of a stats, having slagged off uh, the home office for their obsession with statistics, I am a bit of a stats geek. I do like a bit of a uh, X and a Y axis, bit of a Pareto distribution, a normal distribution, all of that stuff. Yeah, I, I spent far too much time poring over bloody uh, statistical charts uh, around police performance. It, it obviously got under my skin. But yeah, the uh, stats around the podcast are looking really, really healthy. And there's a an exponentially growing curve uh, showing downloads increasing month on month. So thank you ever so much for that. And uh, clearly people are enjoying it out there. And um, yeah, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your dog, tell your cat. Right, a um, couple of things today um, before we get into the interview. So the interview this week is from an ex-colleague of mine, uh, Neil Sinclair. He's a top bloke, really, really international man of mystery. Uh, completely unfairly good-looking for any one human being. Uh, clearly, when looks were being handed out, uh, Neil and his family were at the front of the queue. So, uh, which is more than and can be said for a few of my other ex-special branch colleagues who were clearly towards the back of that particular queue. But uh, yeah, Neil, a really interesting character, uh, fantastic sporting career behind him, uh, brilliant stuff that he did in policing. He ended up being a power, a power so it's sort of like Northern Irish accent, like a power boat, a power boat uh, champion at some point in time. So clearly he has friends with deep pockets as well. So yeah, um, really interesting chat with Neil. But uh, before I go into that, though, just a couple of things from the news this week. So I was really uh, amused and pleased to see that the West Midlands Police had not given in to demands from people going to the Tory party conference in Birmingham this week that the Benny Hill music, which would be played loudly outside the entrance to the conference by protesters, uh, should be switched off or turned down. 
I thought it was absolute genius. Uh, I believe the, uh, the suggestion is that it was Hugh Grant, the actor, who, who came up with that particular idea. Not sure if that's true or not, but either way, it, absolutely brilliant. I had to laugh my head off at watching some of the uh, stuff on social media about Tory uh, attendees giving these people the absolute evils as they were walking into the conference through the security gates with the blaring Benny Hill soundtrack playing. Uh, I believe they'd sort of stitched together the Benny Hill soundtrack and the circus clown music. So well done to the West Midlands Police for not giving in to that and holding your ground. Apparently there was all sorts of demands being made to, uh, uh, you know, this is on the back of the police crime and sentencing bill. They're talking about disruptive protests and uh, the Tories I think were arguing that this uh, fitted the definition that required I believe again I'm probably wrong here I believe a section 14 notice to be served uh, to stop that from happening but well done the Westminster Police for resisting that that was uh, an entertaining and amusing uh, moment for me this week um, the other thing uh, which is quite interesting is um, Martin Hewitt, the uh, chair of the NPCC, um, has gone into the lion's den and given an interview to uh, the Daily Mail, or I think to be more accurate, he's written an article that was published in the Daily Mail yesterday. Um, and the title of that uh, article is, we want to give people peace of mind that if you experience a burglary, officers will come. It's a, it's a key step in building trust in the police, writes NPCC Chairman Martin Hewitt. Yeah, Daily Mail. Oh, God, yeah. You know what I think about the Daily Mail. It's just an embarrassment as a newspaper. Um, but I suppose if you want to get your message out, um, then you've got to deal with your some of your greatest critics. And there's no one who's been more critical of policing in the last 10 years or so than the Daily Mail. There is an absolute, if you Google, if actually if you Google it, just Google Martin Hewitt Daily Mail burglary, you'll find the article. There's an absolutely ridiculous picture, which is obviously a stock image of a burglar, in inverted commas, um, climbing through a window. And he looks like something, um, it doesn't look like any burglar I've ever seen. The only thing he's missing is the, is the uh, crow's feet sort of comedy theatrical prison uniform and the swag bag over his back but uh, but anyway um martin talks about how uh there is a urgent requirement to improve crime outcomes no shit sherlock and um hand in hand with that npcc are allegedly going to the home office to try and get the home office to agree that the mission for policing is too broad and that the only way that they're going to be able to focus on improving response to crime is to uh, reduce the mission. Good luck with that. Anything with the Home Office. Um, yeah, I, I personally I, I personally think that Chief Constables and PCCs just need to do it. Uh, and if they upset the Home Office in the process, well, it's tough shit, basically, because um, I, the Home Office, in my experience, and the experience of pretty much everyone I know, moves a glacially slow pace, and the geeks and the bean counters will 
uh, hijack that particular conversation and before you know it they will have tinkered around the edges and very little will have changed but really encouraging to see that at least that conversation is taking place because uh, I think we would all agree that it's absolutely essential to be going to every burglary or for that matter every serious crime but in order to do that there's a whole load of things that they're going to have to stop doing um, and that is uh, for me all day long uh, about uh, trying and failing to be social workers and mental health professionals so yeah we shall watch that one uh, with the very greatest interest right let's get into the interview with the beautiful manly human being that is Neil Sinclair. Hey, Mr. Sinclair. Ian. Uh, I'm sorry. I think I may have sent you two Zoom invites, in which case uh, I apologise. That's a user error on my part. <laughs> no, no worries at all. I, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I was a little bit, I was a little bit baffled, and I was, I was late coming. I was flustered <laughs> as well as that's, baffled. You're very. That's very unusual for you to be late coming. I would have uh, imagined <laughs> a man of your life experience would have. Uh, resolved that issue by now yeah i know what can i say <laughs> nice to see you nice to see you in how are you yeah i'm very well very well you're looking well my goodness thank you, you very know, much look, you're starting to look a bit like cliff richard can i say there's a bit of cliff richard <laughs> going on there or is that the eternal youth the eternal yeah youth? well okay i'll take the eternal youth i was hoping you weren't meaning i was gaunt and <laughs> and, and, and and looking slightly distressed by my involvement with the bbc <laughs> no. <laughs> no i think we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll just just clarify that eternally eternally youthful i think that's the uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so yeah thank so how are you doing are you all right yeah i'm 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 very well thank you yeah enjoying yeah. Uh, enjoying life to the uh, as much as I can. Um, trying, how about yourself? Yeah, good. All very busy with all sorts of stuff. Yeah, just uh, yeah, we've still got the builders in the house, so the house is all over the place, and um, uh, yeah, sort of working with a startup and doing all sorts of interesting things. So yeah, it's good, and um, yeah, it's, um, I'm trying to think. The last time we saw each other, it probably would have been in uh, probably at a, a X special branch. A bunch of old dinosaurs getting together and getting pissed and eating um, unhealthy food, I would imagine, at some point. Yeah, I would think so. The old uh, 1817 club or whatever it was called, something like that. Yeah, I haven't done many of those in recent years. I still I still go to the, the Burns night, which, of course, you would never have been a part of. No, no. Even the wrong side of the water. Don't do all of that. Talking in <laughs> tongues, you know. And... <laughs> Eating, eating yeah. disgusting things tied up in bloody women's stockings, whatever it is they, <laughs> whatever, whatever it is they wrap up haggis in. It's just revolting. Yeah, you know? well, no, I'll, I'll let you live with that. Uh, live knobbly, with that knobbly knees, men with knobbly knees and men with knobbly knees wearing skirts. Yeah, <laughs> it's never, yeah. never good. Is it? Yeah, never good. yeah. So we, we, didn't, we, need, we didn't need to have our gender identified though. So. You know, we were, <laughs> We were, we were ahead of the game. We weren't in yeah, the game. Jock, the jocks have been gender fluid for, for many, very, cent very long many centuries, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
<laughs> so anyway, there you go. I've just managed to uh, upset probably uh, every single person who listens to this who's uh, from that part of the world. But there you go. My <laughs> podcast, my rules. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah. So uh, unapologetic. Yeah. So um, I've um, so I've obviously moved moved across into the digital world as you've obviously yeah 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 um, which was a bit of a um, which was a bit of a chance chance thing really because when I left in 2016 I I imagined that I'd find myself in the financial sector which didn't particularly fill me with glee yeah um, uh, and I I did a few few trips into Canary Wharf to speak to to, to the banks and what have you yeah didn't particularly enjoy doing that I thought after 31 and a half years of of traveling into mostly into uh Westminster I didn't need to go the extra four or five miles to Canary Wharf every day yeah and then I got this approach out of the blue to do some work in the on the digital sector um given my my stint at the end of my career three and a bit years at uh, Cheltenham yeah 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 so, um, I mean so I'm, I'm really keen to well uh, so let's let's get into the podcast proper um so for the benefit of people listening, then, um, if you want to just briefly introduce yourself in terms of you know what your background is and what you're doing now, and then we'll. So what I'd like to do then is just to sort of go right back to as I do, right back to first days in the job, and we'll work forward from there. So yeah, so brief intro then from you. Okay, alrighty. Um, so uh, thank you, Ian. So um, yes, I've done. Um, in the early 80s, I joined the Metropolitan Police, having um, come down to London via uh, um, University of Newcastle and working for a couple of years in the windsurfing industry, which kind of gives you the, the background to, to, to where I come from. Um, very much sport orientated, and um, I was one of those rare um, people back then certainly can't be repeated now and maybe Ian will go into this a little bit further but I was recruited because I was a good rugby player <laughs> rather than anything else um, and there's some certain stories that will come round about about that I'm sure but uh, yeah 1985 I joined the Met a um, couple of years um, policing out at Harrow Road which is near near Paddington mm -hmm. uh, on the old D division D district as it was then um, did actually uh, about a year in uniform, um, and then was swifted off into the into the CID and crime squads and one thing or another, and then equally quickly arrived in the autumn of '87 at what was then Special Branch at New Scotland Yard, and um, and had one of those charmed existences where whenever the commissioner or the Home Office or Mopac or whoever it was decided that policemen should be moved around because that was the best thing for them. I always found myself doing the most important job at the time, so never got moved. <laughs> so I managed to do everything that the, the branch had to offer, um, pretty much um, the various different squads that we had, the uh, um, extreme left and right wing, the uh, international side, um, a, little bit of, a little bit of time later on uh, doing the Irish, of course, in the 90s when all that blew up again and just before Hillsborough. Um, Spent some time doing surveillance, had a fabulous time doing protection. And then um, with the advent of marriage, children, one thing or another, running around in fast cars and with guns under your arm wasn't quite so attractive. So um, moved into the financial investigation sector, the NTFIU, as it became known. Um, and I spent the, the last uh, 
12, 11 years of my career there, but with a very interesting secondment down to Cheltenham um, for, for three of it. And that's uh, GCHQ for, for, yeah. for those who, who don't, I mean, so we, we tend to talk of, the, of it as Cheltenham, as you know, um, but uh, yeah, so, wow, I mean, fantastic, fantastic career. So, um, so let's, let's go right back then. Um, you were obviously a sportsman. Um, and did you play for Harlequins or is that my imagination? No, that's, that's right. That's where, that's where I was, I was playing. Um, I came, as I say, came straight down from Newcastle, started playing at Quins in 1983. Um, and it was actually, uh, um, I was actually hovering around whether to, whether to apply for the police as, as, um, as you know, Ian, around, around that time, the early eighties and what have you. With the riots that there'd been in in Toxteth and uh, Lambeth and various other places, um, and a review of policing, um, the introduction of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, of course, yeah. um, which came in in 1986, um, police pay suddenly became respectable, yeah. Um, yeah. and it became a it became a um, you know a viable career really. And yeah. um, lots of people said to me, Neil, all the sport you do and everything. Be a perfect career for you. You'll you'll get paid well. You'll have fun, and you'll still be able to do all your sport. Yeah. Hummed and hard around about about whether I should follow up on it, um, and it was actually at the stoop um, mm. back in the days. Those of you who go there now, um, it was very different back in the eighties. Had just one stand, um, which was very much like a public lavatory um, in style, and um, we would, we played a Middlesex Cup game on the Sunday. I think. It was either against Saracens or Wasps. I can't remember now. Mm. And um, these three gentlemen came up to me after the after the game, and I should have suspected something straight away. They were all wearing suits, and of course, apart from the players who were in blazers, everyone was fairly casual on a Sunday afternoon. They talked to me a little bit about the rugby, and then one of them, um, who was actually Commander Ben Gunn, said, uh, mm. "So Neil, we hear you've got an application to join the Met Police." And I think only my parents and my three referees knew that at the time. Right. And I was on the on the brink of withdrawing my application. So I said, well, yes, I have, although I'm not really sure. And they said, well, have you ever thought of anything like the security services or special branch? And I said, you know, what boy, what boy hasn't? Um, but maybe I went to the wrong university. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we would like to have you, but you're going to have to go to Hendon and, and um, you know, prove yourself as a, as a uniform cop, first of all. And the rest, as it were, uh, was history. Yeah, um, and I went up to Hendon in February '85. The second. So, so you're playing rugby at a really high level. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's pretty much you know as high as it gets, doesn't it? Apart from sort of the national level. And um, so yeah, I mean, were you nearing the end of of your sort of? I mean, I know every sportsman has to make a decision, don't they? Sportsmen or women, they have to make a decision based on where they are, I suppose, in their sport. What the future looks like, uh, how old they are, and what injuries they might be carrying, and all of those sort of factors, which then decide: okay, is this? Am I going to take this further, or am I going to sort of draw a line now and say, right, I need to do something different? So, where what was, where, where well, were you? Yeah, so I was I was um, twenty four. Um, I had been in the England under twenty three squad. I was playing for Middlesex. Um, and so the future was laid out in front of me. And of course, in those days, this is long before before the professional era for rugby union. Um, the Met Police were one of the top 
24 sides in the country. Um, and you would regularly, well, every week on Grandstand, you know, their results would be read out alongside Harley Quinns and Leicester and Bath. And in fact, the Met Police's fixture list had all those sides on it. So really? there was no there was no massive um, downgrading in in quality of rugby. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So so I'm I'm yeah. So I was I was I continued playing at Quinns. Um, until I became um, uh, went through uh, went through my uh, Hendon training, which was twenty yeah. weeks back in those days. So that effectively took me to the end of the eighty-five season. Nice. And were, you um, a wing- were you a winger? No, when I when I came to the Met, um, I was playing fly half or centre. Right. Um, I'd always been I'd always been a number ten, and at Quinns we had uh, a chap called Richard Cram who was playing for Scotland. So the uh, the Quinn's hierarchy, we had Yeston Thomas was our coach back then, said, uh, Neil, you know, I want you to play, but you're going to have to play in the centre. So mm. I arrived at Harley Quinn's as a as a uh, 22-year-old mm. weighing 11 stone 7 and, you know, 5 foot 10. Mm. Um, and I went into the gym and built myself up to a 13 stone 2 centre. Um, and... Um, so I so I came across to the Met Police as either or. At the time, the Met Police had well, their captain, in fact, was a, another special branch um, alumni, uh, Tim Bryant, who was playing fly half for London Counties at the time. So my chances of displacing him were fairly slim. Mm. Um, but um, I took some games there, played in the centre, but. Yeah. But then you, you talked about injuries and what have you. I did have a really bad knee injury. Um, and after that, um, I moved to fullback, which is where I played for the last five or six years of my career. Right. Um, and probably played some of my best rugby. So, yeah. oh, Well, that's interesting. That I mean, I didn't know that, um, that, that Met, the Met were, I mean, that shows how things have changed. I mean, that just single fact change shows so much, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, that the Met Portland Police were one of the top rugby teams in the country um, playing against people like Wasps and, and Harlequins and Saracens. And yet now, I mean, like when I, I played, not I played sport for the Met, but not to the same level as you did. But as you know, in those days, you were given time off to play sport, weren't you? Well, absolutely. I think, I think probably um, there was, there was myself and there was, um, there was a, 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 another chap called Steve O'Reilly who was playing for Wasps at the same time. And we'd been in the England under 23 squad together. We'd been in the Middlesex team together. And he, he, he had actually joined the Mets slightly ahead of me. Um, and um, so, yeah, so, you know, we had some, we had some, um, mm. we had some great players. Mm. Um, and um, it was, I think probably Steve and I, I don't think we worked a Tuesday. Really? Probably for for the first. <laughs> and did that, did that cause any ill feeling with colleagues at all? Like us, um, these bloody these gold golden boy rugby players who are allowed to kind of basically go off and do what they want to do. Well, I think it, I, it it was interesting one when when we were in uniform and Steve did his uniform for a lot longer than me, um, and there was there was a, a strange one because of course you had time off for training and then most importantly you had your saturday afternoons off mm. um and if it was an away trip we had back in those days we had special leave so you just get the yeah. whole day written off in written off in red 
Um, and certainly the beauty of, of being back in those days on D district was that they pride, prided themselves on their rugby. Um, and if you had you know, a slightly um, difficult duty officer or something, mm. then you'd get put on chief superintendent's patrols or yeah, commander's yeah. patrols yeah. Um, and you'd, you'd sign on at the start of your shift and then just disappear. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't have any effect on you. Yeah. But, uh, yes, obviously, um, from time to time, colleagues would make comments um, about you never being there. You know, there was the, as, as with everything in the police, there was the acronym of SO, which is every Saturday and Sunday off. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, um, but, of course, the, the upside to that was if there was ever anything um, slightly, um, how should we say, um, more dramatic going on on a shift, um, for example, suspects on premises or something like that. Yeah. The call would always go out over the radio, you know, um, it, 399, are you receiving, which is my shoulder number. Um, we're going to come and pick you up. We've got suspects on at the other end of the ground. Yeah. So yeah. from that point of view... You want someone who's got to be fleet of foot. Exactly. So, OK, I was never being fleet of foot on a Saturday afternoon for the, for the, uh, for the uniform police, but, uh, but every other day of the week. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, so, so it had its, its upsides and its... And of course, uh, we will. Don't, don't worry. For those who are listening, who who are boring the shit out of them talking about <laughs> <laughs> talking about sport and rugby, but it's kind of interesting. I've never had this conversation before with anyone on the podcast, but it is interesting. I think so. Apologies, anybody. If there's anybody listening who fucking hates rugby, just just fast forward <laughs> through this. Um, but but you'll you'll remember Paul Ackford. So Paul Ackford was was my inspector briefly at Clapham, mm. and Paul Paul he was an England rugby international, wasn't he? And he, he was, was indeed. Yeah, absolutely yeah. massive. He was. So I'm just looking at his Wikipedia entry here. He was six foot six. I mean, he was built like a brick shit house. He was a lot forward for England and, and the British uh, Lions. Yeah. And, yeah. and of course, the most famous thing about Paul, of course, was that he got he got absolutely lamped by the Argentinian prop uh, Mendes, and and fell down like a telegraph pole. And that that sadly in the rugby world, that's probably what his career is most remembered for. Oh, really? Apologies, Paul, if you hear this. I'll have, to, I'll have to look that up on YouTube. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> anyway, listen, let's move on from rugby because, um, as I say, um, you know, I could, we could, it could that could be a podcast in its own right, couldn't it? So. Um, in terms of policing then, uh, very quickly, you spent very little time in uniform, uh, went into the CID. So, so um, it sounds from what you said then, that was quite quickly then that you went to special branch then, yeah? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was very quick. I did, a, I did really um, a short term in the main, main office at Harrow Road, um, which was an interesting time because our, our senior officers there were, was um, Brendan Gibb-Gray, who, mm. who really changed um, the way crime reporting was done yeah. um, back in those days. Um, and um, so it was an interesting time there from that point of view. Um, and um, then I worked on the crime squad, um, which again, you know, it was a really busy ground. We were on the edge of, edge of Notting Hill yeah. Um, we had we had the Edgware Road and um, all that sort of area as well. Mm. Um, Bayswater, Queensway, with all the tourists, even back then, and prostitution yeah. and the drugs, burgeoning drugs trade, as more and more um, uh, Middle Eastern um, people began to buy the properties around there as well. Yeah. So did, you, did you time. know? Um, did you know my brother when um, Steve when, when yes. you were at Harrow yeah, Road? Yeah, we we arrived we arrived at Harrow Road at the same time. Oh, did you? 
Oh right, yeah. and you both ended up in Special Branch. That's quite yeah. it's quite strange, quite a weird coincidence, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think we'd, we we spoke about it beforehand. It was always you know it was something it was something that you didn't speak about, wasn't it? Really, a Special yeah. Branch always had a, a yeah. rather um, strange relationship with the rest of policing. Um, <laughs> yes, putting it mildly. Yeah, yeah but but fortunately, probably not as not as heavily criticised. Certainly at Harrow Road, as um, as uh, traffic police criticised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, um, so you're. Um, I know we've. I've had uh, quite a few of my ex special branch colleagues uh, on. Uh, so, yeah, two or three. Um, so your memories of of the organisation. I mean, it was quite so a quirky, very quirky, unusual organisation, wasn't it? Particularly yeah. back in back in those days, I think. Uh, yeah, full was... of full of interesting characters, wasn't it? Oh yeah, I mean the the, uh, the characters I think of, of that period of the uh, of the eighties and and uh, certainly through to the the late nineties, um, just the whole way the thing was the whole thing, way the thing was structured almost as a as well, I think I think we used to say it was the best gentleman's club in London, <laughs> um, and 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 now that would be hugely disrespectful because there were there were quite a, a, a lot of gentle, gentle ladies as well. Exactly, there were some there were some very um, very good and very influential and important uh, ladies in the mix as well. Mm. It shouldn't be forgotten, but you know the whole thing about the uh, the eighteenth floor being hallowed ground and mm. um, that you only went down there by invitation. Yeah, and 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 people would stop you as you came through the door and said, "What are you, you know, what are you doing here?" Yeah. Um, now that that came around a bit later on when when it all became SO15 and they, and mm. we had similar kind of strictures because of door pads and what have you. But yeah. uh, but it was it was you know you you didn't you didn't go there and and of course the other thing was you got the call if you were a a young probationer within the branch um, on a on a Monday morning. Um, to to head off and buy the papers and and somebody would be sent out at uh, half past three to get the evening standard final as yeah. soon as it was printed and of course um, the other thing which uh, which of course hasn't happened for for a good number of years but being sent out to buy the bottles that's right on Friday lunchtime that's right well I, I I recall it was typically Thursday because there was a very strict rule that you never had a hangover in your own time wasn't there that's so, right. Uh, <laughs> Never have yeah. a if you're gonna have a hangover, you have it in job time, not your own time. So Thursday afternoons tended to be the drinking um time in the office, wasn't it? And um, yeah. I mean this is this has gone back a long way now. My God, all this kind of stuff, you know, it's definitely well, absolutely. back in the day when we used to, we used to have the tank in New Scotland Yard as well, which of course yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. you didn't you didn't you didn't go into until until somebody yeah. invited you yeah well i can remember uh, as a for relatively new special branch officer probably a, probably less than six months in in uh, scotland yard and i got summoned to myself and another dc got summoned to the superintendent or chief superintendent's office and in those days as you as you know they were kind of like god weren't they i mean you just didn't talk to them you didn't interact with them they were these mysterious people who worked uh on the 18th floor and um so i can't even remember who it was but but he basically said to me um right i uh, i want you to go around every everybody in the office and bearing in mind big open plan office on the 17th floor wasn't it probably i don't know both sides of the corridor probably the best part of you know, 150, 200 people probably, right? I want you to get 20 quid off everyone. And then I want you to go to Sainsbury's and Victoria Street and get 
um, you know, four cases of um, red wine, four cases of white wine, three bottles of gin, three bottles of vodka, three bottles of, you know, whatever, and, and shit loads of beer. And then we had to go down, <laughs> had to, go down to the, <laughs> go down to the uh, kitchens in Scotland Yard and get these great big plastic exhibit bins yeah. f- full of ice. And, and then he said, and then uh, be ready to go in the, in the office. Everybody's got to be ready to go for, you know, half past four this afternoon or whatever. So we went down, me and this other DC went down to Victoria Street Sainsbury's and literally, literally came back up Victoria Street in our suits and ties, pushing two shopping trolleys full, <laughs> full of booze, which we then pushed straight through the front doors of Scotland Yard into the lifts and then up to the 17th floor. Mm. I mean, and nobody bats an eye, batted an eyelid, did they? I mean, no. that, was, that was how times have changed, isn't it? Yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But they, it was. It was. It was. It was good because obviously, you know, as time moved on and that became unacceptable, one of the things was was that the whole social balance changed as well because, mm. um, you know, it was there was a certain something. There was almost a three line whip that you stayed in the office. Yeah. Um, to 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 get involved. Yeah. Um, and um, and actually, you know, to give a, a sense of the culture, anyway. Um, obviously, being a, a fairly uh, top rugby player, when I when I joined the police, I was teetotal. Right. And um, I remember um, a DI at Harrow Road uh, saying to me, um, Mister Sinclair, nobody will trust you if you don't drink. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and going going round the back of Harrow Road to the local pub where they would go after an early turn or whatever. And um, and basically feeling compelled to drink yeah. a pint of Guinness. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that must but, have been um, strange. But yeah. the thing is, the thing is, and I, t- I, t- I talked about this in my book that there was this, there was this sort of heavy drinking culture. But as you know, um, there was a lot of amazing work done um, during those piss ups, um, and certainly during the height of the provisional IRA terrorist campaign mm. on the mainland, we would be talking almost exclusively work. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there was a lot of piss take, a lot of banter and all that kind of stuff as well, obviously, but there was a lot of a lot of work going on there. I know that sound, people may be listening to this thinking, well, how could you possibly talk about work whenever you're half pissed? But we did. And there was, there was some absolutely genius plans put into place during those piss ups which we would then put into action over the next two or three days with spectacularly positive results. So it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a mindless kind of jolly, was it? No. And I think that was one of the, one of the interesting things too, was, was that you actually, you didn't switch off work while you were with your immediate colleagues because, mm. because the work we were doing was, you know, obviously, and this is well documented, was not something that you would speak about outside of the work environment. Anyway. No, no, no. You certainly so that, wouldn't be talking about it in the pub. Definitely no, not. No. So that chance to sort of have that free, um, you know, almost liquid thinking, if you like, yeah, literally. Um, was was sometimes quite advantageous, as you say, and some yeah, and some yeah. of the best work developed out of the pub. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so you went on. You did. You had a long and successful career in Special Branch, which then obviously morphed into. Counterterrorism command, didn't it? You know, yeah. when uh, when SO12 was 
sort of absorbed into what became then SO15. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you, you did uh, any highlights on, on sort of along the way around protection? I mean, you were on protection for quite a long time, weren't you? Yeah, so um, I, I, I think probably in hindsight of my um, six, six and a half years on A squad as it was, was then, mm. was probably the most enjoyable time of, mm. of the lot for me. Um, I was single. Um, so, you know, there, were, there, was, there was no strictures on my time. I never felt that I had to be somewhere else and there was nobody worrying about me. It was, it was often the case. I was, I was lucky enough um, to, to be posted to um, Michael Howard, who was Home Secretary, um, mm. his protection team for, for the longest time. Yeah. Um, and it literally was a case of of making sure that I'd got some food in my freezer and a few clean shirts. And I would often, you know, in a in a 10-day stint, we'd work 10 days on, four days off. Mm. Um, possibly only go home for those four days, um, or even only, you know, pop home for, for one night in mm. between going down to his constituency or going on various trips and what have you. Yeah. Um, and of course, having that that kind of um that kind of role uh got to do the international travel as well so yeah. and went with him to moscow and finland washington had an absolutely brilliant time in south america mm. uh with him um finding myself walking and walking along the the main street in uh, uh medellin oh, um, and uh <laughs> I, I was what could possibly go wrong there i so i had a i, I had um uh, a very fancy um, holster that was given to me by my Colombian host, and I, sadly I can't remember his name. Were you, were you permit, presumably you were carrying firearms? Yeah, we were ca- well. So, so two interesting sides to that. Firstly, when I arrived in Bogota, one of my colleagues had gone out and done the recce. So, so we would we would you know, somebody would go out and, and look at where you're going to go and make all the plans and everything and organise security, and then the 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 principal protection officer if you like would fly in with his charge mm. and everything would be laid on um, and from the protection point of view it was always the the difficult thing was was doing the recce and making sure he got everything right there mm. if that had mm. been done correctly then the actual trips were a blast mm. usually because you knew that everything was taken care of um, but flying into Bogota and being met by um, one of the or the head of security from the from the, um, the British Embassy mm. um, and getting into um, a Cherokee Jeep. And um, as, I, as he got in, he said, now this is what we'll be doing and don't worry about the outriders because the outriders were just the guys who got to work with their own motorbikes that morning. They weren't, you know, it was a bit of a shock after having the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. after having what we have in the UK. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he said, oh, and that under the seat is yours, by the way. And there was sitting under there was a, was a, um, a, a semi-automatic, um, um, machine gun, for want of a better right. term, sitting under my seat. I said, "Well, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified to use one." Though. I haven't said, had the co- haven't had the course. Haven't had the course. He said, "Well, you are now." Um, but walking down the the street of Medellin with a with a, a, a fancy hip holster that, that I'd been given, uh, and I was wearing all black, and um, Michael Howard, Lord Howard, as he now is, um, and his wife uh, Sandra Howard was was there with us too. And he stopped, whatever he was in, he came back, and I was only sort of two or three yards behind him. And he said, uh, he looked at me, dressed there all in black, and he said, uh, Neil, you are still on my side, aren't you? 
which is uh, uh, yeah. I'd love to have seen you having to reach for that weapon and actually try and figure out how to use the bloody thing you know it'd be like <laughs> it would been the fastest course you've yeah. fastest firearms course you've in history a- wouldn't it absolutely yeah and and just just that way how how on earth would uh would um so19 or the firearms unit have dealt with that if I'd put a bullet into the wrong person <laughs> oh in the God. middle of Bogota there's a lot of writing there there's a lot there's of writing a hell of a lot of writing <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, oh, fortunately, never happened. So oh, yeah, so brilliant. there was, so there was, a, so that was great fun. And then, um, and then I had a really interesting um, 1997, obviously, um, and the um, the Labour government came in, um, and um, I was shifted literally overnight onto Jack Straw's team, who became the new Home Secretary. So, right. so at two thirty in the morning, I think it was, we knew what the result, we knew what we were going to be beforehand. To be fair, but I'd, yeah. I'd taken. I'd taken um, Michael Howard to cast his vote and um, and then, you know, dismissed, as it were, because he was going to sit at home and watch the results come in or whatever. Yeah. And I got the call at, uh, at sort of 2.30 in the morning, Neil, prepare yourself. You've got to be at Downing Street for, for uh, 11 a.m. to take over the new home sec. Um, and, so that and, must be a strange experience to, to, to kind of be the protection officer during that change of government. Um, so not only have you got a new government, you've also got a new principal and you've got a new personality and having to try yeah. and adapt between the two people. Yeah, very much so. And of course, it's the really, it's the really interesting um, one you have too, where you, you know, you, you, you're in a position where you've got a lot of knowledge about what's gone before and there's that sort of um, integrity thing about about what you share with with yeah. the new lot. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. I'm, there, I was fortunate because the relationship I built up with with both Home Secretaries I looked after um, was very very strong, and I remain I remain friends um, with them both even mm. now, mm. Um, and certainly with with Jack Straw. Um, I, I've I've seen him fairly regularly since. Right. Um, so it is. I mean, you get a very personal relation. You get, you get, um, and again, you know, I was, I was quite, a, quite a, a youngish man in those days. I became um, friendly, close with with their young family as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And certainly, and certainly in Jack Straw's case, and I'm, I'm sure she'll um, she'll forgive me uh, should she hear this. Um, but his wife uh, Alice was mm. incredibly um, against having police mm-hmm. anywhere near her and her family. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the reasons, one of the reasons that I got that very quick transfer over, there was myself and now um, the late colleague Stuart, Stuart Ebers, who were moved immediately. And one of the reasons was was because um, it was felt by the um, A squad management that I had the right kind of temperament to mm. deal with Mrs. Yeah. Straw. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was one of so I went in and I met I met the new Home Secretary inside Downing Street, had a chat with him, sat, had a cup of tea, got to know one another, and then um, uh, you know and I tried to explain to him how we would work, and um, and then he said, well you must you must you must come home with me and and meet the family, yeah. um, and that's what I did, and then and for quite a little while it was really a case of myself and Stuart who was our um, our special branch driver, mm. um, trying to nurture that relationship and convince um, Mrs. Straw, Alice, mm. um, that it wasn't going to be as bad as she obviously thought it was. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, you have, you have to remember, too, that 
that quite a lot of the, the, the Labour Party who obviously hadn't been in power for, for as long as I'd been a police officer yeah. and longer, um, had come from quite extreme areas. And Jack himself was the former deputy head of the uh, Students' Communist Party. Yeah. So, 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 you know, and, and, yeah. and there were things like they, we, we heard, you know, various members of the, well, um, I would certainly hope Special Branch would have a file on me, and that sort of thing, they would say. Yeah, 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 but yeah. also uh, the very different way in which, in which they, they behave. They, mm. um, and, okay, I, I, you know, I, this is, this is a, a whole social thing, I suppose, but the interaction just with the staff at Downing Street, for instance, was different mm. when... New Labour, as they call themselves, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And this is the thing. This is the thing, isn't it? That um, you know, I don't want to get all kind of doom and gloom about the way policing um, has gone over the last ten or twelve years. And the, but I do think this is another really good example of how treating the organisation as uh, treating police officers as if they're just employees who are dispensable for short periods of time. And, and can easily be replaced by another, you know, uh, employee who stays for four. This, that's, that is a recipe for disaster in my, in my view. And the, what you've just described there doesn't just happen. You, that is a result of many years of someone being sort of nurtured, trained, recruiting the right people, putting them into those very sensitive roles and they've got the maturity and the intelligence and all of those things to be able to make that a success and that's one of the things I do worry about that if you find if, if things carry on in current sort of course and speed for policing we're going to end up with a very very inexperienced workforce who will and you will just not have the raw materials to draw on and we'll come on to talk as well about you know the other things that you then went on to do that also required a huge amount of uh, experience, um, you know, intelligence, and you know the the operational experience that that requires. So, so anyway, so just move, moving on from protection, then um, you then became a financial investigator, um, so which is quite a departure, isn't it? Yeah. Really? Well, there was there was there was a little bit of a of a hiatus in between the two periods, and one that you know I think it's probably worth just touching on which you possibly don't know about Ian is we then at the period where um, we've gone from special branch to being SO12 and as you mentioned earlier then there was the um, shall we call it the um, conflagration of mm. SO12 and SO13 yeah. into yeah. SO15 and and I I had done a stint on surveillance and I'd done a stint in on the Irish desk um, and then I got asked to um, to head up a strategic analysis unit, which we'd never had before. Right. This was the early two thousands. This was this was as twelve and thirteen were coming together. Right. Um, so so one of the one of the things that I very much got engaged with. We had uh, Janet Williams as a commander. We had uh, Richard Walton, who became the commander, was was mm. uh, the chief superintendent, who interestingly enough had worked with me when I was already established on E Squad, and he'd come in as a probationer. And, and now he was you know, destined for destined for great things as he always was, um, and he'd asked me to head up this this unit, which was quite an interesting one because in terms of rank we were quite low level, but in terms of influence we were really mm. yeah. we were really important to where the yeah. twelve was going. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know there was a very interesting period there where where I found myself 
sitting in rooms with the senior management from SO13, so John Boucher mm. and um, uh, various others, um, sitting in a room with them. And it was quite interesting because often I would be going to these meetings and I would go on my own. I had Peter Wickstead or, or Richard Walton mm. um, couldn't make it. So I was, I was there on my own representing SO12. Now mm. I had, by this stage, the best part of 17 years, 17 years experience of how the branch worked. And I'd, I'd seen pretty much all of it, apart yeah. from obviously except for except for you know certain obvious ones mm. um and um and often i find myself going to these meetings and and the so13 um staff officer would say you can't come in here mm. and i'd say well i can because i'm representing so12 and he said oh you know that, that just shows you what so12 is like um yeah. and i'd also have things to where, where also i would find myself going to um senior management team meetings mm. on uh the on the fifth floor the commissioner's floor Mm. Um, and I would find myself sitting there on a on a whenever it was Monday morning doing the intelligence briefings, and mm. of course I was the only person in the room who was um, uh, DV'd, top cleared for, for for strap and everything. Um, and um, I remember particularly sitting there one with um, with Mick Messenger, who was who was um, head of. Uh, Territorial policing, and a, yeah. but a really good friend to Special Branch because he knew the value of everything that we that we did, um, as far as as far as protection movements and surveillance and SDS and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember. I wouldn't name him anyway. But the but but one person with an awful lot of uh, um, spaghetti on his shoulders and his hat yeah. said, "Well, you know, what are you even doing in this room?" Yeah. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, the only, I'm the only one who knows the intelligence. And Mick Messenger said, actually, we should all shut up because Neil is the only one who knows what we're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, that, and that yeah. was... That yeah, was I've, heard some, I've heard some horror stories about that period where there was an unbelievable level of arrogance displayed towards Special Branch and stupidity, frankly, as well. Um, people who didn't understand the organisation, didn't understand um, where it sat in the wider national security sort of ecosystem um, and there was this sort of bullying CID kind of mm. mindset you know I'm not saying that CID officers are bullies but there was a there was a there was a um, mindset that special branch are a bunch of um, prima donnas uh they're not real detectives well We're that was the great thing of course we done we we did the cid course as a matter of as a matter of course being in special branch and the constant thing you got thrown at you was well you're not a real detective because you'd never have got the course if you hadn't yeah. but of course the, the counter argument is well actually we are the only detectives because we're the things that find out things that that haven't happened yet whereas you have to rely on something having happened before you have any work that was always my standard response to that um, but it was it, it very much there. I mean, policemen typically they they want to know everything. You have to have an in, uh, an investigative, an interrogatory mind, don't you, to be a police police officer to be any good at it. It's, yeah. it's germane to the role. Yeah. So the fact that that we in special branch had all this intelligence that we didn't necessarily share anywhere. Well, they hated was, it. They hated it, didn't they? They absolutely hated it, and they didn't understand it. Why can't you tell us that? Mm. Why is that? Why why don't we need to know? Well, of mm. course, I need to know. I'm a senior officer. Well, actually, you don't, because yeah. it has no bearing on your life at all. Yeah. Now, sometimes, sometimes I think even before that could sometimes go slightly, slightly wrong too. In even within special branch, there were certain mm. things, you know, that that I know 
people learned, people heard. Mm. And there was often that accusation, if you didn't share it, then you'd gone native. Yeah. Um, which, which to my mind was not always the case because not everything, not everything you learn has to be shared. No, um, no, not everything not. that you learn is necessarily is necessarily uh, germane to this. And it's not necessarily good for you either. I mean, I think that, um, you know, you could always use that analogy in your own life, couldn't you? That um, knowing things about other people's lives, for example, that is none of your business mm. um, is actually unhealthy for you. And, and it allows loose, loose talk and gossip mongering and all of that kind of stuff so the need to know principle is there for a very good reason isn't it absolutely um, because yeah. either either consciously or unconsciously people leak stuff don't they they say things in meetings that they don't even realize that they've said sometimes yeah. and yeah. and that would lead potentially directly to the compromise of a very you know a human intelligence source um who could end up being taken out and murdered as a result yeah. of their disclosure, which was only known to a very small number of people. So anyway, um, again, we could probably do another podcast entirely just well, on, yes, on the demise of special branch, couldn't we? But um, yeah. so, um, but yes, then to, to, to take it back to the question you asked, Ian. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even remember what the question was. So, so. so um, special, special branch had been, had been, I think, I think fairly much at the, at the forefront of financial um, intelligence gathering, using it as a tool. For um, for not only terrorism but extremism as well, um, and you know the, the idea of following the money didn't really come in until post 9/11. But we were kind of we had a very small unit called FISAC originally, mm. um, which I, I think had, well. had one end of the squad office I think, um, and um, yeah uh, five five uh, men and women in that, and um, and it was it was it was another one of those where I think you got invited to be part of it. Mm. Um, rather than you applied to be part of it. Yeah. Um, so, um, but then of course, post 9-11, the whole financial um, investigative world just, just took off. Once, once Barclay Card um, and various others came out and said, well, if, if the uh, CIA had been following the money, they may have been able to stop 9-11. That's, that, of course, a moot point. And again, a subject for another time. Mm. Um, but suddenly... Um, FISAC became the National Terrorist Financial Investigation Unit, and it began mm. to grow exponentially. Mm. Um, and not only not only was it was it um, inviting detectives from um, SO12 now SO15 to come into it, but also um, but also financial investigators um, from the CID world. Um, mm. to come into it and and of course the, the great thing about it was from a point of view of, a, of a, a, a work point of view from being part of it was that um you saw absolutely everything that was yeah. that was happening in the terrorist world it was brilliant from that point of view yeah, yeah. um and we had we had certain very strong characters, and Ian, you'll know who I'm referring to. The commander, <laughs> I, know I know exactly who, who you're referring to. Who, um, who, you know, who who made who made the NTFIU virtually the centre of the universe, and as far as as <laughs> why, far because, as why because why because he was there. 
<laughs> well, well, that probably that probably helped. That probably helped. But you know, his 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 reach and just his yeah. No, no, I'm only taking the fist. I'm sorry, it's very sorry. Be very be very clicky here, but it'd be rude yeah. to mention them. But, but, uh, is, but you know, and those those kind of things, um, and the various other units that were springing up around the time. Once once um, special branch had obviously lost its primacy for Ireland and what have you. Hmm. There was there was a little bit of a. Um, I won't call it, it wasn't quite a hiatus, but there was a difficult period where Special Branch was, was struggling to, to mm. re-establish itself mm. and having lost that primacy in Northern yeah. Ireland yeah. Um, and obviously um, with the rest of the world as well, having already slipped away. Um, and I, th I, I think to some extent it was, the, it was the NTFIU that sort of re-established it in the centre because it was, it was doing things that nobody else could do and it had access to things that nobody else could do. Mm. Where you know the security services, the security services could felt they could do an awful lot that the police could do, and indeed they could because of the because of the sort of the data analyst world mm. that we had been operating in, yeah. because it became more IT based. But the F, uh, the NTFIU, the Financial Investigation Unit, had a had a niche that was that was second to none really. Yeah. Um, and one so, of the key one of the key things, I suppose, as well, the different people sort of say, so why why do we need organizations like Special Branch or the Counterterrorism Unit? Why couldn't the security service just do all of that? And and the simple answer to that question is because they don't have any executive power. Exactly. And yeah. um yeah. Uh, they can't arrest people. Um yeah, converting a lot of the things that are required for complex investigations, particularly around terrorism. Um you know the evidential requirements are significant, aren't they? Um, yeah. And and the people who are best placed to do that are experienced investigators, detectives, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, and the great, the great, the great skill that that nearly all of us had, Ian. I mean, I you know remember those days when fantasy football first took off, and we had all the fun around. And you know, there was that there was that team in what was then the the remains of the B Squad office, and all that sort of stuff. But one of the great things that, that nearly all of us had was the ability to go out and talk to people. Exactly. And of course, that, that's, that's something... In, as, know, as, cops. as cops. As cops, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and from all different walks of life as well. You know, so, so there's, you know, there's my slightly more plummy voice, but I could easily walk out with somebody who was, you know, who mm. was a, a, a Yorkshireman, a, an East Londoner or something like that, and go, go somewhere and sit with people and talk to them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, have, I, I remember sitting down with a group of right-wing uh, Hindus mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a house in Wimbledon discussing what was going on in India. Mm -hmm. um, and they just talked to me because I was a policeman from Scotland Yard. And that was always the key. Right? Yeah, you know? yeah, and, yeah. and I don't think, whatever anybody else says, that's something that the security services will always struggle with because they can never just be themselves mm, when mm. they go into a room and try and have these conversations. Finding, so, finding common ground, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, I think it's very, very important tool. And it's something I, really, um, I really take my hat off to anybody who works in financial investigations because personally, I think I'd rather gouge <laughs> my own eyes out with a teaspoon than do that job. I actually can't imagine a worse job for me personally because I just would hate it. I hate anything to do with finance. I hate anything to do with money. I, I, I mean, my accountants for my business just must completely despair with me <laughs> most of the time because pretty much everything they ask me to do gets done mm. not very well from that point of view. I'm usually quite late. 
Um, so the, the idea of having to try and understand someone else's finances, I, I really take my hat off to anybody who can do that. Well, as I say, it's, it's, um, I, I see exactly where you're coming from, Ian, and I, and I won't diss you at all for that point of view. Of course, it, it, the fascinating thing is, is, is that nobody can do anything without money. Mm. Um, and whether you can, what, what you can see is obviously hugely enlightening, but often as enlightening is what you can't see. You know, the, thing, the things that are obfuscated, either because people are doing cash, people are using uh, hawalas, the, the, um, the, you know, the, the bartering yeah. style of, of uh, money transfer, which is still so prevalent in um, so many communities um, in, in, the, in the UK and around the world. Mm. Um, and so the things that you can't see are as interesting as the things that you can see. And then you've got the joys of kryptonite, of course, as well, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, so that's um, that's that's uh, brings a whole different. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to give, illustrate my point about being really shit with money uh, with money related matters. I let myself be suckered into downloading a Coinbase app for crypto, and I thought, well, I'll I'll sort of throw a few quid into it just to see what happens. Um, and this was just before the massive crypto crash there, about sort of six months ago. So mm. I, I sort of dipped my toe into the crypto world and stuck about 200 quid into it. And I'll tell you what, I'll just see what my, my princely sum of <laughs> my 200 <laughs> quid is currently worth uh, today. Let me see. Um, uh, oh, oh, 105, actually. That's pretty good because it's been down <laughs> as low as 63 quid. Well, yeah, there you go. So it's, 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 not, it's uh, a little bit worse than the dollar. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so let's get into cyber stuff then, because obviously yeah. you forged out a new um, and hopefully prosperous, um, you know, line of work in all of that. So, so what took you into the cyber world? So I did my I did my secondment to GCHQ, <clears throat> where again I was the head of uh, the financial intelligence lead there, um, and there was sort of a, a natural involvement with. The cyber world, um, you know, the stuff that GCHQ, I'll, I'll leave to people's imaginations. Hmm. But there was a certain growth in knowledge about how the World Wide Web and all the badness that goes on on it and hmm. some of the good things, um, how that could be exploited from the financial point of view, particularly, and hmm. the kind of things that we were, we were able to see um, through that, hmm. uh, which, would have been, which would have been unaccessible. Mm. Um, pre-1996 for sure and certainly later than that you just the, the things would have been happening that you just would never have seen but now mm. suddenly you could mm. so growing in the understanding of that when I eventually handed in my warrant card and, and left um, there was obviously a great opportunity to I guess I'd been a poacher in a way to now become become the gamekeeper and, mm -hmm. and go out as I say initially I thought I thought that I would find myself in the financial sector because I knew how we had exploited their their um, trade their transfer of data, yeah, and so I knew how it could better be protected. Mm -hmm. um, but then suddenly, because I was I was approached by Police Crime Prevention Initiatives, which is a, a not for profit um, which works has the National Police Chiefs Council as its board and MOPAC and, and one or two others. Um, and they they'd always been in the physical space um, again going back to the back to the 80s mm -hmm. um, 
you know, that when, when burglary was going through the roof and the police couldn't handle it, mm. um, police crime prevention initiatives was created to try and make properties harder to burgle, basically, yep. and to get a standard. So most of you now, if you go and look at your doors, windows and locks, will see that they're secure by design, which mm. is the police crime prevention initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, time had moved on, and and the cyber world was becoming was becoming more and more of a thing, and more and more difficult for policing to deal with. So I was a, approached by um, Guy Ferguson, who's the CEO there, who was a former chief superintendent in Sutton, um, and he said to me, Neil, could you see how we can get um, some form of cybersecurity and engage it with the retail sector? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first role. That was the first role I got, and I went out and I talked to various businesses, the likes of uh, um, John Lewis and uh, Curry's, Dixon's, um, as they were then, um, various others who were selling massive amounts of, of uh, PCs, desktops, uh, laptops, whatever, to ordinary bods like you and me, mm-hmm. um, and letting them go out of the shop with no security attached. Um, long and short, I won't bore everybody with the, with the story of it because it's not that interesting. But it, it, it wasn't a goer um, because it's it, too difficult for, for retail to do, although I understand they are still looking into it with various universities helping them. But mm. what, I, what I did find was that one of the difficulties for, for people who want to buy cybersecurity is knowing who the good guys are because it's mm. it's a, a sector that's grown massively you know it's worth yeah. billions of pounds to the to the UK economy yeah. um and of course a lot of snake oil salesmen yeah were getting into the getting into the field and yeah. you could you could look at your systems and say oh i need i need some kind of um email security or i need to make my website better or i just need to make my network better but mm. where do I go and find what's good? And there was nothing to say that. So yeah. I came up with this plan to do a digital security provider scheme, right. um, working with um, uh, the um, testing houses like British Standards. Um, mm. The big one that's in, in the cyber world is called IASME, mm. um, to try and, try and build standards that the police could, could, with minimal risk, say, these are the good guys and these are the ones you should go to. Right. Um, at the other end of it, of course, we have the problem that the end users, particularly in business, were becoming more and more vulnerable to fairly random attacks. It, yeah. it used to be that people would say, well, I'm so so small, I'm such a small business, why would anybody be interested in me? Well, that was a complete um, misnomer because... Yeah, yeah. A lot of all, almost you could almost turn that on 180 degrees around and say they're particularly interested in you exactly exactly because you're vulnerable because yeah because you're 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 an easy hit you know see so so what I then brought into was a scheme that would give the end user the end the small businesses a basic leg up to see that they were digitally aware, we called it. There already was one in place called Cyber Essentials, which is the government scheme, mm. but it hasn't been hugely successful and nobody really knows why, because it's mm. it's a, you know fundamental security. It costs 350 quid to get it. But even when the Scottish government were giving businesses a thousand pounds to do it, they still weren't doing it. So it's- but Why it's do you think, that's an interesting one, why do you think that was then? Is it just people don't really understand it? Is it that they can't be asked? Is it they're too busy? All, all, all three of those. Bloody all I, three get, of those. I get a Plus, gold star then, don't I? I get a gold star. Yeah, so it, so exactly, it, you know, it's, it, it's, 
it's the business owner who thinks, oh, first of all, he thinks, well, I'm not a target. Secondly, secondly, he thinks I haven't got time. I don't understand it. Mm. Um, and um, or, or he just, you know, oh, I can't bother. I'm too busy making money. This is it's, it's a bit like insurance. You know, we, yeah. we have to have insurance to drive our cars um, and in the hope that we'll never use it. And the cyber, well, the cyber users, the digital users have very much a similar posture i think is that yeah. is that it's never going to happen it's a i'm throwing good money away where's my roi return on investment on doing that mm. so so they don't um, and of course the difficult thing too is everything cyber by its very nature is done online mm. and what we did differently i got involved with what was then known as the london digital security center and i became their chief operating officer mm. um, and what we actually did was something very unique my team actually went out into the community and spoke to people who knew um, that you could still talk to people. And of course, yeah. we, we, we worked closely with, with police. So we would arrive on, um, you know, let's say Richmond, Richmond High Street and walk into a, to a, an office, whether it be a, a hairdresser's, a florist's, um, a small office of solicitors, accountants or something like that. Yeah with a uniform cop or community support officer. Of course, that focuses their minds. Sadly, yeah. you know, if you or I walked in there now, we'd be given very short well, shrift. They'd, they'd think you were a scammer, wouldn't they? Yeah, but you've got a uniform with you and the warrant card, then, then you get yeah. 15 minutes. Um, yeah. You know, in the background all the time, they're really wanting to talk about litter and burglary and everything else, but they will mm. talk to you about digital and you're there face to face. And one of the really interesting conversations that we have is we go into these small high street outlets and say, what do you know about digital security? And almost without doubt, the really small, we're talking, you know, the two, three person businesses, even mm. the Mrs. Miggins pie shop is our classic example. Yeah. Um, and they say, well, I don't really have one. And you say, well, okay, how do you take your money? And they say, oh, I use this um, switch, switch card machine. And that is linked to the internet. How do you do your calendar if it's a hairdresser how do you do your calendar oh we use google sheets or you know whatever the special hairdressers app is yeah. and that is connected to the internet and you have these conversations they say oh yeah that's true what would happen if you lost that for mm. 24 hours and the hairdresser one is really interesting you say well it just goes somewhere else and would they ever come back mm. probably not because they go next door to tony and guy or head yeah. you know, headmasters or something like that yeah. um and, you know, how long can you afford then not to have access to the internet before your business goes belly up? Mm. Mm, yeah, probably two or three days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it, suddenly, it suddenly makes this a far more in-your-face concern yeah. Yeah. and you get people to do things. But, of course, still... Are you, offering, are you offering them... Uh, so when, once the penny kind of hopefully drops with them, do you then signpost them to uh, solutions or... Yeah. How so does, what how we, does it work after? So that? what we tried, what we tried, what we would do with them would we, we would then stand there in front of them and take them through a basic questionnaire. Do you do this? Have you done this? Have you heard of this? Do you use password managers? Have you got a firewall? Have you got antivirus? This, you know, these sort of things. Do you know where all your bits of equipment are? Um, there's basically ten points you go through, mm. maybe twelve if you're really pushing it, mm. um, and then say, okay, thanks for that. Here's what you need to do to make yourself basically digitally aware. Mm. And then we would go back three months later and do a, do a, a recheck. And is, like, there a, is there a cost for that? Then? Well, there was. Uh, so 
um, we, we would just charge 50 pounds, which would basically get them a certificate which said police, digitally aware, um, you know, very much, we based it very much on the, on the health, the, um, the food and health check that yeah. shops have on their windows. We thought if you could put that on your letterhead, your website, what have you, so that your customers and more importantly, your suppliers, mm. because the, the supply chain issue is a massive, massive mm. vulnerability in yeah. the UK economy for cyber attacks. So if, if for example, I, um, I don't know, let's say um, a major supplier like L'Oreal or Elverb or somebody like that, you know, who supplies, supplies shampoo products and what have you to, if they know that they're not going to get hacked at the lowest point, that gives them a lot more confidence. So that's what we were trying to do. Unfortunately for me, we were trying to grow this and we had a really good buy-in from the insurance sector who, who desperately need something um, that their that their clients can do to show that they are doing the right thing digitally. They loved it. Um, a lot of local councils loved it. The one place that didn't love it was the National Cyber Security Centre. Um, and they said, no, that's our job and you're undermining right. cyber essentials and so please stop. Um, right. And of course, um, you will know, uh, and you'll have had it, the, the sort of the international fighting that goes on between between government organizations yeah. and policing and what have you. So basically NCSC got in touch with the National Police Chiefs Council and said, we don't like what these crime prevention initiatives are doing, please stop it. So we, we stopped it. And NCSC built their own, which is called Cyber Aware, which is very good, but there's no certificate and you don't pay for it. So consequently, most people don't bother doing it because it gives really? them nothing except peace of mind. And, and, and then we go back to the full argument, people don't have time or the interest to do it mm. themselves. So, yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a very it's a very similar kind of issue around internet safety for children, isn't it? Yeah. So you know, very similar issues. Lots of people don't understand that. Um, you know, so we're in this situation now with our our um, you know our kids who are on the cusp of getting mobile phones for, <coughs> the, first, for the first time, and uh, you know, so we're I'm pretty tech savvy, as is my wife. Um, so we're very confident about what we need to do to lock everything down and make it safe. But of course, in a classroom of 28, 30 kids, um, what's the percentage of children who will have tech savvy parents um, or the even the inclination to do anything to protect them online? You know, it's very difficult. And all you need is that those two or three naughty kids in the class who've got mobile phones and before you know what they're showing your child and everybody mm. else's child stuff that you really don't want them to be seeing you know yeah um, well this is one of, the, one of the really interesting things and one of the way that um, that the covid pandemic played into my hands in a way was <clears throat> first of all we did everything um with the personal relationship we'd go out and speak to people suddenly <clears throat> in march uh, 2020, we suddenly had to transfer everything onto online, which wasn't the way we wanted to do it, but it meant that we met, we reached a far wider audience, obviously. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, But the other thing was, we now had people at home. So rather than just talk about cybersecurity in the workplace, mm. we could make the whole thing a much more cultural. Yeah, um, holistic cultural kind message. of approach. Yeah. So exactly what you're talking about, Ian, we would now say, well, you know, when you log on to your, your desktop of a morning, 
do you just go, you know, you put in your password and then you go straight in and you'll find out that your partner's shopping has been there, your child going on Mossy, Mossy Monsters has been there, your teenage boy going on Fortnite, um, your, your, you know, somebody else in the family going on a dating site and all that sort of stuff, all on the same computer. Yeah. So, and, and you're going to be doing your work for KPMG. So <laughs> you've got a data breach right there. Yeah. So, so, you know, now let's look at that. So now let's, let's, let's tidy up how we access the internet so that we make sure that you, Ian Donnelly, you go into your own, your own password, into your own um, bit of the computer. Firewall yeah. bit, yeah. And your children have their own bit. And somewhere else on the system, you have an admin so that you can, you can control as the admin what's being downloaded. Um, and everything without it coming anywhere near your emails and what have you. So simple things like that. But then taking the, the wider... But, that, but that's kind of predicated on the assumption that there's someone in that household who can do all of that, isn't there? Well, this, uh, so, this is what, so this is the message that we're trying to get out. And, and, but, of course, we've got a very interesting position now where there's, there's our generation who have got used to the internet, mm. and we've got the generation that's come through and all they know is the internet. Mm. Um, and... There is an expectation that that generation will be much better at it, but actually they're not. You've already mentioned the iPhone thing. Of course, the thing about mm. the internet for the youngsters coming through is it's disposable. Mm. And it's also, it has to be fast. And anything mm. you put in the way of that is, yeah. is not really acceptable. So you get the classic thing where your young child comes to you, age four or five, the first time they're interacting with the internet, and they say, you know, mummy, daddy, I need the password to get on CBeebies. Mm. And you say, oh, use my email address and the dog's name plus the house number. Yeah. <laughs> and does that child ever come and ask you for another password? <laughs> and incidentally, you have told them that password because it's one you use. So yeah. you've got the whole family using Rover 13. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and 20 years down the line, your kid's gone off and is now working for the NHS and is still using Rover 13. Okay, I'm taking it to extremes. Yeah, but yeah, this yeah. is this is so it's you know it's just having those conversations now to sit around the table and be able to say to your children, have you changed the password on your phone? The other, yeah. have you changed your password? Oh, I, I see you've got a new account for your Outlook. Don't yeah, use yeah. my account. Create your own. Yeah, and yeah. get a password. Now, now most teenage boys or even younger, eight-year-old plus, will have a password manager. Dash Lane or LastPass or something like that. Their parents don't even know about. So they're ahead in that sense. But when you say a password manager, is that somewhere you just store your passwords securely? Yeah, it's, 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 right. an on, it's an it's online... It's not like generating them all the time. Well, it? it generates them as well. The, the the good ones, they generate the password for you. So I'm sure you, you see when you go onto Safari or Google or something, offers to give you a strong password. That is basically they've been yeah, basically a strong password that you'll never remember for the rest exactly. of your life unless but, you're some sort of fucking rain but, man or something. Yeah, but with a password manager, you get you get an, an app which has a so so I use one. Um, I have currently um, 346 different passwords. Okay, the shortest of one, the shortest of which is 14 digits, and there's only about three that are that short. I only have to remember one password. And that's to get into my password manager. That right. is that is thirty six digits long, okay. So, providing all my rugby and heading of footballs doesn't give me early onset dementia, 
you know, I'll, I remember that one in my sleep. I'll wake up saying it in my sleep. So, I, so, so this is news to me, actually. Well, not news. I've heard of password managers, but to be honest, I've never really used one, and uh, I didn't really understand what they are. So, <laughs> so that's that's definitely something I've learned today. So, what what which ones would you recommend to people? So, um, okay. So, interestingly enough, the one that we used to recommend for um, Android and um, Windows was LastPass, but they had a massive hack last month. Oh, bloody um, hell. So, um, so um, there is Dashlane, which I've mentioned. Um, there is a very good one, which is fairly niche, called Jumbo. <clears throat> um, and they also do, do two-factor authentication for your multi-factor authentication. They also continually monitor your email addresses and passwords to see if they've been breached, right. which will be fascinating because there's, there's, a, there's, um, there's a tool out there on the internet called um, uh, I've Been Pawned. It's not spelt how it sounds. It's, but you, you would find, if you put in I've Been Pawned, you would find it. And you mm. put in your email address, not a work one, your personal one, mm. and it will bring up all the breaches that have been on your, on your um, email address. And it's fascinating because even people in the same business as me will put in an email and they'll find out LinkedIn is completely and utterly a, a dog's dinner. As far as mm. as far as being breached goes, right? Um, <clears throat> and obviously, it gets have, a gateway into yeah, uh, so many on, businesses, isn't it? Yeah, and people have been on LinkedIn for for 15, 15 years, and they've used the same email the email address and the one password to get into it the whole time, and that's been that's been sold multi multi number of times on the dark web. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so you know, it's, it's exposing, and that becomes another story then. Um, but and if you're using Apple devices, um, uh, one password um, is the best for that one. Mm. Um, the difficulty for people going out and doing it, a lot of them are American, so people, mm, that's not so good. But it, you know, they, they are good. Um, and then we get the whole we get the whole issues around um, cloud computing. Mm. People not really understanding that the cloud is actually just a server sitting in a field somewhere. Um, probably somewhere in the home counties yeah. um, and thinking that when they store their photos being the classic one in the cloud then apple will have taken care of everything but of course apple don't apple take care of protecting the cloud they don't take care of protecting your data hence mm. every model and actress in hollywood mm. has had naked photos of herself exposed online because yeah. they just stick them up there and think yeah, job think done well, now that's yeah, safe yeah, yeah. but of course it's not so so just a, a, a subtle change of direction i'm yes. just curious what you think about this from where you are so one of the big issues around policing at the moment of course is investigating um uh, crime obviously crime resolution rates very poor um the nature of crime has changed quite significantly albeit we've still got a lot of traditional type of crime out there, you know, the burglaries, the car thefts, the robberies, the assaults, all that stuff. But there's obviously an increasing volume of crime, which is to some extent or another facilitated by the internet. And uh, online frauds, as you will know better than anyone, are uh, absolutely um, everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's eye-watering amounts of uh, money, which is, uh, you know, being stolen uh, almost every day. Um, so, there is a question in here, don't worry. Um, from a policing point of view, do you think that, the, that your typical 
police officer based in Harrow Road, albeit Harrow Road police has probably been sold by this government, haven't they? Um, but in police station X, Y, or Z, you've got uh, PC Smith or DC blogs uh, investigating an online fraud. Do you think the battle against online fraud from a, non, from a law enforcement point of view has been well and truly lost? Do you think there's any way back to try and reduce the amount of fraud uh, against British, um, the British public? So from the, police, from the policing point of view, the way policing is set up in the UK particularly, it is going to be an impossible one to recover. The beauty of the beauty of for us, the cyber criminal is it's cross borders, cross county, cross cross international borders, the whole lot. So one of the great difficulties that policing obviously has is who's going to deal with it. Mm. And, and we have action fraud, which is supposed to be the repository for all fraud reporting. They have, they have their own filters on what they will take on as a report, for a report, they're based in the City of London, and then they will farm it out to, to where the report has come from, which may be two or three locations if it's a business. Mm. Um, and quite often that then won't get through the, won't get through the filters that that, that county force has mm. um, or, or the Met Police has. Um, in, terms and so of, in terms of solvability. In, in terms of solvability, in, in terms of investigability to start with. So it'll be mm -hmm. almost straight away, uh, you know, in, in old money, no crime, more or less, um, which is incredibly frustrating for the, for the victim, obviously. Um, but it, 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 it is incredibly difficult. How, how does your, your PC, DC Smith in, in Harrow Road deal with a, um, a, you know, a phishing email that has clearly come from, from the Ukraine or Latvia or something like that. What's, what's it gonna do? It's, um, it's hard enough when you're in the NTFIU to get permission to, to, to get statements and what have you from, from yeah. a foreign country. So, yeah. so from, the, from the policing point of view, it's going to be incredibly difficult. And, and of course the other issue, Ian, is that constant ubiquitous daily mail test mm. is you know cyber crime the majority of it very seldom gets into the paper unless mm. it's somebody like bp or shell you know the nhs obviously when lives are at stake um, but if it's if it's the majority of us it's not newsworthy mm. um, regardless of the amounts involved unless unless you happen to be a billionaire mm. um, it's not newsworthy but so, so that policing is always going to be more concerned, mm. realistically, with other things, particularly in the current climate. Which again, mm. you 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 talk about um, you know, ad infinitum, the yeah. current climate of policing and the politicisation of it. Yeah. Um, so the Met's the Met cyber unit, for example, when there was the uh, you know when there was the the, the, the horrible events um, of the last year or two um, that that were eventually to bring down the commissioner, I guess. Um, the cybercrime unit would, would regularly have its, have its people taken away to go and deal with real crime, mm -hmm. physical mm -hmm. crime. And that's, yeah. that's very difficult. There's also around legislation, what have you, there's two types of cybercrime. So there's cyber-enabled and cyber-dependent, mm -hmm. things that can only happen because it's on the internet and things that are, happen 
better and more frequently. That causes problems, um, you know, in, in, in what the police are allowed to deal with, as you, again, as you'll know, um, mm. uh, KPIs, um, key performance indicators are the massive thing. And, and you know, you're not, you're, not going to, you're not going to accept a key performance indicator that you can't actually do enough about. So, yeah. so yeah. cybercrime is really difficult. Having said all that, NCSC, GCHQ have done a brilliant job at mm. what they do. What they, what, they have, what they have prevented from happening far outstrips what has happened. Right. Um, now, again, you'll understand that because, as we mm. always used to say in the, in the terrorism world, mm. the things you never hear about, mm. we never get any plaudits for that. You only hear yeah. about when the bomb goes off. Yeah. Um, but um, so you know, it, it, it is similar with that. So yeah, it's not I'm all... sure. I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's a lot of. You know, I just. I pity. I just pity the poor DC in some CID office somewhere. Who you know, there is this figure, isn't there, around the victimization and of uh, online fraud, particularly, and the very, very like something. I'm, I'm a bit rubbish at remembering these stats unless they're on a piece of paper in front of me, but I think it's something like not only 0.01% of all sort of online frauds actually result in someone yeah. being, being charged and going to court. So 99.9% .9 of all online fraud comes to nothing, doesn't it? Yeah. And of course, it's, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic, Played into that, in, into that to to increase the numbers because suddenly those sex traffickers, drug dealers, robbers, and everything were suddenly realised. Well, we can't do that. Everybody's sitting at home, uh, mm. and not interested. But we can go on to online. So it's become very much part of organised serious crime now. Mm. Um, massive, massive part to it, and the way they the, the way they run it with with the um, the laundering and you know people that they use. You, you, you know the constant opportunities make make can, do you want to make a fast a fast ten thousand yeah. pounds and often these people are the mules for serious mm. organized crime mm. um getting getting illicit funds moved through by fraudulent fraudulent emails and what have you. and of course we've become we have we have all become suckers and this is part of where the cultural education piece comes in for opening stuff on our mm. phones and on our yeah. Yeah. um on our ipads and on our everything um, that we have no reason to open. You know, mm. classically, in the first six months of COVID, possibly even longer, I'm sure we all received something mm. about, um, do you want to buy PPE? Mm. We have a million pounds worth of PPE equipment ready to ship. Mm. Now, you and I have no interest in that whatsoever, but my goodness, mm. there it was in the papers, the NHS can't get hold of it. How come I'm being offered this click? And then yeah. that releases the malware into your system. Yeah. Um, injections, vaccinations. Um, yeah. We all know that vaccinations are free yeah. through the NHS, but how many millions of people out there have clicked on one saying, yeah. book, your, <laughs> book your NHS vaccine? Yeah, today. and I'm sure the next one will be, you know, save 25% on your energy bills or something along those They're lines. They're already out there, Ian. Yeah. The, the next one will be, might, may, may even be nuclear bunkers. Who knows? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Listen, my friend, on that cheery thought, <laughs> the constant of time, um, probably not a bad time to, to wrap it up. Listen, that was, that was fun. We, bloody hell, we covered a lot of ground, didn't we? Didn't we? Didn't we go there from Bloody uh, hell. the Stoop Memorials and nuclear bumpers? Bunkers, you as the, uh, the sporting megastar all the way through to uh, 
saving us from the saving us from ourselves probably most of the time but uh, if not ourselves then the dark web but uh, yeah listen mate uh, thanks um thanks a million for coming on and um yeah really yeah, really interesting a lot of food for thought in there isn't there well yeah thanks for having me in i really appreciate it it's lovely to talk to you and, yeah um, yeah no well, and, um yeah. we must uh we must catch up soon um with all of the other reprobates from uh, our, our past life and yeah uh, yeah now that uh, now that you know we've gone through that horrible period when no one was allowed to go anywhere or do anything or you know so yeah should, yeah the thought should, of a few a few a few should, beers we should make the most of it before putin decides to you know <laughs> fire something really horrible <laughs> yeah, oh, or, yeah or biden fires one the other way and misses oh my god i tell you fuck, you know it's like um just when you think just when you think the world couldn't get any madder, you know, get some lunatic in Russia who's just threatening us all with nuclear mm. weapons. It's like, I know, oh, doesn't bear thinking about it. Make it stop, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen, brilliant to, brilliant to chat to you, and uh, I'll catch you up again uh, London over a beer, hopefully. Brilliant. Great. Thanks, Ian. You take care, nice, mate. Nice to see you. All the best. All the best. Bye. bye 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 bye.